I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nate Sager. And welcome to Sports Lit. Today our guest is Dan Robson. He's a senior writer at Sportsnet, and his writing has also appeared in the Canadian press, on the CBC, and in the Toronto Star. He is the author of the bestseller, Quinn, The Life of a Hockey Legend, and co-author of bestsellers, The Crazy Game, How I Survived in the Crease and Beyond with Clint Malarchuk, and Change Up, How to Make the Great Game of Baseball Even Better with Buck Martinez. His feature writing has included uh, The Boys of Whale Cove, about a First Nations youth hockey team, uh, which was selected in the Best Canadian Sports Writing Anthology. Of course, Stacey May was on our show a um, couple of episodes ago, and we talked a little bit about that. And most recently, he wrote What It Takes, which is about two-time Stanley Cup winner Kevin Stevens and his battle with addiction. Today, of course, we're here to discuss primarily his fourth book, Killer, My Life in Hockey, about Maple Leaf legend Doug Gilmore. I guess you could say this is an autobiography uh, written in the first person. And Nate, I'm going to bring you in here. We're two Kingston guys. Uh, and nine years ago, you wrote a blog post right before Mr. Gilmore's banner went up into the rafters of the Air Canada Centre. And it was called, the title was Dougie Defined Us Fully Completely. Being a Leaf fan, you know, me and you were both Leaf fans during that era. Um, you know, the, the, the runs to the conference final. What were your takeaways? I'd like you to just read a little bit from your blog post from back then. Okay, yeah, and this this would be this it would be nine years old next <clears throat> next week, and it was like to say Dougie defined us fully completely, and it's like the analogies with Doug Gilmer fall short, just like the Leafs have so often. The best stab of fighting through any ambivalence on the eve of Gilmer's big night in Toronto is to say that for two years. 1993 and 94, he was an exemplar of something that courses through Canadians on a chromosomal level. Plain and simple, he was best summed up by what he didn't have, which is, I think, something next to godliness in, in the great white north, eh? You know, there's this passage in uh, Roy McGregor's uh, cult hockey novel, and I know it's like hacky to quote someone to have their words stand in for yours, but Roy McGregor's cult hockey novel, The Last Season, which I think really explains why being great and being loved can be not necessarily exclusive things, but are two different things. There's this uh, scene in the novel where a small town hockey coach, Ted Sugar Bowles, closes a pregame pep talk to the protagonist team by saying, what makes a shark truly unusual is what he doesn't have, and that's a swim bladder. A shark has to keep moving constantly. A shark does not float like other fish. He has no swim bladder, see? He can't let up for a minute. And that's what makes him talk dog. And you think of Doug Gilmer, you know, he was 160 pounds soaking wet. He was the number 134 overall pick in the 1982 draft, and he's in the Hall of Fame. So Gilmore in 93 and 94 for Kingston guys and for people who are Leaf fans, he was our shark. And either you got it that or you, I don't even think you needed to explain to it. You just got it. The same way when you heard five other Kingston guys, Gord, Johnny, Rob, Paul, the other Gord, you just got it. Um, you know, they were particular to their time. You know, he even tragically were just both particular to a time, time and a place. And like I say, like the shark, Doug Gilmer just had to keep moving. And I think in the end, that sometimes gets a player more adulation than those guys who just have that sort of like next level skill and grace, like like Matt Sundin had, or maybe like Austin Matthews has today. You know, it's interesting too. I mean, you brought up some several good points when we discussed what we were going to ask Dan about this book. Um, I really like the point you brought up about the fact that his career is so interesting because in his, I think it's 
let's say roughly was it 20 seasons yeah 20 well, seasons in the nhl the first 10 straddled the pre-betman era and the last 10 are following Batman, which is and it's very interesting and you pointed out you can really see that in the book the, the, the how the game has changed in terms of salary in terms of you know what they're doing on and off the ice um which is something i want to talk to dan about and as for um i think it's it's kind of hard to explain i, I think you, you you really nailed it because a lot of people especially non-leaf fans um always wonder why why people get excited about uh, two runs to the conference final that fell short of even making it to the stanley cup and and you know, for a lot of us, I mean, I know for myself, growing up, you know, as in Kingston, being a Leaf fan, it was the first time I'd seen winning hockey, really, on that level. And, of course, he was the leader. Yeah, indeed. I mean, he falls right into that, you know, he post-Harold Ballard, sort of pre-MLS year. Like, Doug Gilmer never played a game for the Leafs at Air Canada Centre. He belongs to those last years at the Gardens and the little, you know, renaissance they had under the under Cliff Fletcher as GM and the late Pat Burns, and I guess Steve Stavros was kind of the controlling owner. And yeah, the, like the Leafs in the 1980s, you look back at it, they didn't have a single season where they finished with more than 80 points. I mean, the team had fallen into really utter disrepute, and when Doug Gilmore came, he represented something. He represented hope, and in, I mean, and he was kind of that, you know, and in soccer they always have that term, the talisman, you know, like for some player it just makes everyone around him better, and he was that guy. Well, with that said, Dan's going to join us after this brief interlude. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Let's get right into it. Uh, I looked at the press release, and I think they secured the rights to this, HarperCollins, in March. Did you start writing this book prior to that press release being... uh, Put out like how how long did it take you uh, to write write the book? That's a good question. Um, actually, I started working with Doug in October, um, about a year before publication. Okay. So I, I sat down with him and we sat down uh, about once a week at uh, Originals Bar up in Lee Side um, over lunch and just had a beer and a sandwich and, and chatted for a couple of hours. Um, and so that's how it started. And then that process went on for a few months and then. Um, I kind of got into the writing in earnest um, uh, in December, okay. January, and then yeah. So how do you, how does Dan Robson land the Gilmore book? Is there a is there a process behind the scenes where authors are buying to get a book like this, or is it the the subject is choosing you to write? How does that work? Uh, in this case, so I have a, a literary agent that I work with that I've worked with um, since I first wrote a book. He was sort of the guy who represented us, Rick. Broadhead, um, and in some cases, a publisher will come with a project and say, "We'd like you to do this project." In other cases, it's um, Rick going out and and talking to athletes and saying, "Are you interested in writing a book?" In this case, I, I believe it was Rick that had been uh, sort of talking to Doug for a while, and, and over the years, I mean, Doug's been asked dozens of times to write a book, uh, and the timing was just kind of finally right. So uh, Rick actually connected both of us. We had a meeting uh, by phone and, and met one day in the, the bar to talk about it, and it went from there. You've written uh, three books previous to this, correct? Uh, f- four, actually. No, three previous. Yeah, yeah four previous total, yeah, to this. Sorry. So this is your fourth book. And obviously, I mean, right in the thank yous, you talk about going to your first Leaf game. And, and obviously, Doug Gilmore, this is 93, roughly. Um, so I'm assuming you didn't probably grow up watching Clint Malarchuk or maybe maybe Pac-Quinn later on, but did this have special meaning to you, this book, 
of, of you know in relation to the other four, uh, three yeah the the point about that i write about in the, in the acknowledgments of just that that childhood memory of watching um that team that doug was leading and understanding sort of the feeling the magic of being in maple leaf gardens that's something i could actually feel quite right. viscerally and um meeting him I, I, I was actually quite nervous to meet him for the first time and I'm, I'm usually pretty good about stuff like that but because of the place he held sort of in that in my childhood and sort of having that gap over years of um, sort of not interacting with him at all or not not right. getting to meet him get, meeting him then it just sort of threw me back to that time so um, yeah it was it felt special I mean I, I've enjoyed writing all the books I've done but this felt um, unique in a way that I was able to experience something that I'd um, imagined many right. years ago um uh, I've never really encountered Doug Gilmore personally a few times for interviews, but he strikes me as a type of guy who'd have to warm up to you before he would probably reveal much about himself. Was that the case? Yeah, it's interesting. He's incredibly, um, incredibly kind and like welcoming right away. So if you were to meet him, um, he he you know, shake your hand and know your name and ask questions about you. He's kind of that has that average Joe kind of right. um, you know I'm not a big star um, kind of mentality. But he is a big star and everybody he meets a ton of people. It took um, I, I wouldn't say it was it was difficult to sort of crack into into his sort of you know what's going on inside. But um, yeah, it took a, it took a, a little while. He's used to talking to a lot of reporters and and this process is different than that it's not just about talking about hockey and your favorite hockey memories it's about talking about life and talking about his parents and his family and stuff so we had to kind of get there but that really was sort of a natural conversation and then once you're there you're you're there so did you bring out you just went to originals and brought a tape recorder and that's yeah cool. so that's what i brought i bring a tape recorder i brought a like a notepad but i, I rarely actually uh use a use a, a notepad while I'm writing, especially in a situation like that, because for a book like this, I actually get everything transcribed. So I'll get, I'll pay to have it all just like written out so that I can go back and look at it and rewrite it. But then it's just, I mean, there's so much content that I need to have access to every conversation we had. So in that case, I, I can just sort of set the recorder down and we can just chat. And that also puts um, him at ease too, because we're just, we're just talking. It's not right. for an article. It's not for anything like that. We're just talking about his life. Well, here at Sports Lit, um, a couple episodes we decided in the spirit of Nardwar that we want to give a <laughs> gift to our guests. So three, two episodes ago uh, with Stacey May Fowles, we invited her out to a Blue Jay game. Uh, last week or a couple weeks ago with Carl Subban, we gave him the autobiography of Marvin Barnes, who was his uh, childhood uh, hero uh, growing up. And so... We weren't sure what to get you, but uh, here's your gift. Well, this is kind of you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I would love to say they're brand new. They're not, but you'll see what that is. Uh, I know you are got to be delicate <laughs> there, but this is... Uh, That's uh, awesome. There are a couple of... Yes. Uh, there, uh, there are a couple of original alehouse uh, mugs. I figured I'd bring you back to your time uh, working with uh, with Doug. That is so thoughtful. Thank you so much. I, I like, thank you for reading the back of the book and the mention of uh, of uh, originals. Um, that is lovely, and actually, it will remind me of that. Um, it's uh, that's special. Ha now, I have a question: Were these um, just sort of a, a walkout after a couple no, of nights? No, <laughs> I went in last night, and of course, me as Nate knows, I'm always on time for things. I um, I wanted to get a shirt. They said, okay, come by any time. I didn't know it meant during uh, when the manager was in. So I came in at 10 o'clock last night to buy the shirt. And they were like, you, we, you can't get into the manager's office at 10 o'clock. So then I offered 
to uh, buy some glasses, and they were nice enough to give me those glasses, and then oh. they actually remembered you guys in there working on the books. So. Oh, that's lovely. Well, thank you to Originals, and thank you for such a thoughtful no, uh, gesture. No problem. But uh, yeah, I thought it might, might jog your memory. Maybe you have a couple of stories. Where, when you were in there writing, did you did people approach you guys? Were you in the back somewhere? How did that work? Yeah, all, all the time. Actually, we went. Um, we we'd go like right at um, open. So and, and Doug knew the owners so well that they actually wouldn't be there. He'd go in the back door and he'd come and unlock the front door for me. Oh, and wow. it was very. Um, I, I, at first, I was like, this is this seems weird. But it's like he, a gangster movie. Yeah, he was just so well known that he'd be there. And, and Doug is like. He's always early, uh, and it was sort of a thing. Like I'm um, generally not, and he he uh, he'd be like, because he's coming from Burlington, and so he hates the Toronto traffic. So he'd be, and sometimes like I, I just leave my house. He'd be like, oh, I just got here. I'm like, we're, we're leaving half an hour, so then I feel bad and I'm rushing there. But he'd he'd come in there, like open the door for me, and we'd sit down just be the two of us, and then the, whoever was working that day would come in after and be like, Oh, hi, Doug, how's it going? Like it was just as it was it was really interesting to see how connected he was to the community of that place. Right. It's a place that he went um, often when he was living in the area, but he's still connected to the owner and mm-hmm. um, and to all the people who worked there. there. There'd be people making deliveries of, of beer kegs that, right. that he would know. And right. everyone would come up to him and be like, hey, Dougie, how's it going? And it'd be different than if we were... Um, sort of out on the street somewhere and people would be like oh that's Doug Gilmore right. inside the bar it, it kind of had a real cheers kind of feel right. to it we're just like hey it's just Doug and so that was uh, that was interesting um, you know I'm going to take the time now to read a portion of this book I really felt as though uh, his father was a real kind of theme a driver in this book and um, so I'm just going to read the last uh, the last part here which I thought was probably the most moving uh portion of the book and I want to ask you how you guys decided to end up end on this and so he goes there was no one quite like Don Gilmore there was no one like my dad he was cremated and we bought a plot in a memorial wall at a gravesite just off Sydenham Road the route was always the route we always took on the way out of Kingston towards the lake I wanted to be able to give him a wave every time I drive by a few days later, I was back at my place on Lobro Lake, going through some of the old things Dad had kept in the garage. I flicked on a dusty old radio that I'd never used to have some tunes to keep me company. Dad was a hoarder, and he stored all the stuff at my place, so there was a lot to go through. He must have had a hundred two-dollar bills hidden away, and he had four or five thousand dollars stashed in the shaving kit. I also had five of his suitcases. One of them was full of what looked like old newspapers. They were all yellowed and aged. I started to shuffle through the pages. They were newspaper clippings from my entire career, going all the way back to my first years playing junior and pro. All those old pages collected by him told the story of my life. As I sat there poring over them, a familiar tune started playing on the radio. It was Dad's favorite song, and it's Big League, um, by Tom Cochran, I believe. Uh, and then it closes with, I put down the yellowed newsprint, closed my eyes, and started to cry. We made it, Dad, I thought. We did. Thank you. Um, how did you know you wanted to close on that? When we first discussed writing this book, um, his dad was one of the first uh, topics that came up. He lost his dad a few years before, and when we started discussing um, why he wanted to do the book now, I think he had some regret that he hadn't done it when his dad was alive so he could um, say thank you in that way because they had um, th- th- it had been such a journey for them uh, especially in their early years in Kingston and then later on and um, in living side by side up at Lowborough Lake for a while um, he, family really means everything 
uh, to Doug, and I found that up pretty early. So I just kind of felt, well, we could continue on and talk a little bit more about the, his, his time with the Frontenacs and talk about life now. It, it, there was just a real natural ending to the story that sort of began um, in the same place that it, that it ends in a way. Um, I'm going to get you now to read your thank yous. And the reason I brought, brought that point up not only was to ask you why we kind of, you know, you ended on that, but I felt like it mirrored some, some of your sentiments yep. in the thank yous. So I'll just get you to sure. read um, right down to there, and then we'll flip over. I'll point it out to you, and then you can start again sure. right at the end. So I'll get, yeah. Absolutely. When I was about 10 years old, I went to my first Leafs game at Maple Leaf Gardens. Somehow my father had managed to get seats right behind Felix Potvin to the company he worked for. It felt like we won the hockey lottery. I don't recall what happened in the game, but I remember the players, the Cat, Clark, Killer, and company. After seeing them on television and trading cards and on posters on my wall, I was awestruck to see them live skating in front of me. They were like superheroes. I remember trying to hang on to each moment in that stuffy old barn, watching the clock click down, tick down, wishing I could freeze time. But it ended as it always does despite us. We pushed out onto Carlton Street, picked up some street meat, climbed into our Ford Explorer, and drove away from that magical place back to the suburbs. But my mind stayed there in the gardens, dreaming of one day playing on that hallowed ice as an NHL star. In retrospect, those dreams seemed completely ridiculous. But I thought about those moments as Doug and I wrote this book together. I sat next to him at Originals Ale House in Leaside week after week, listening to the stories of his life. We spoke about his family and youth in Kingston, and I could see that really he'd been just like me, just like so many of us. Doug was a dreamer whose dreams came true. And I came to realize, so was I, in a much different way, of course, but dreams are malleable. They may bend with time, but the substance remains the same. And then at the, right at the end. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mom, Dad, Jay, and Jenna, for your love and support. And thank you, Dad. I've stopped the clock in my mind. We're still sitting at the gardens. You're still beside me. And I'm still dreaming because of you. That's, uh, it was, I, I found just reading, like I don't normally read the thank yous, but I, I just found going from that, and it's right after what I just read. I was, I mean, did that hit, it must have hit home with you yeah. at, at that point. Well, thank you for reading. Thank you, I appreciate that. No problem. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that is one of my, uh, I shared a lot of happy memories with my father, and he, uh, he passed away a few years ago um, when I was writing a book about Pat Quinn. And uh, it was sort of in the middle of the, that process that I lost him quite quickly. Um, and it was, um, you know, it's something that, that uh, obviously still means a lot to me. Right. And I think about when I write these kinds of stories and get to um, share them with people, uh, I, I kind of think that I'm still sharing them with him. Right. And, and so when I, you know, when I say, though, like, I'm sort of being facetious when saying, you know, I follow my dreams too. But right. in a way, I, I did later on in life dream to be a storyteller. And this, um, this opportunity was something he, he always pushed me into doing and saying, you can do it. You're going to do it. I know one of our, our last conversations was me being incredibly stressed out because there was this horrible deadline looming of this <laughs> project that I took on that I probably shouldn't have. And I was sort of losing my mind. And, and he was like, you know, you're going to get it done. You're going to do it. And I was, uh, you know, so now when I think back of it, when I write, it's sort of like everything ends up being for him. And, and I kind of mentioned that sitting in the garden still, you know, that sort of image of just still being beside him, it's still strong in my mind. It still sits there. And it's something that, um, you know, I cherish. So I'm, I'm glad I'm able to share that. Yeah, I thought it was, it was a really moving ending to the book on both fronts, you know, from you and then following up 
what what Doug had said too. Well, Doug, I mean, Doug and I had that in common. We talked about it. We talked a little bit about um, you know losing our dads and what our dads meant to us. And uh, I could see. I mean, even though his relationship with his father was much different than ours, just as I think everybody's relationship with their their parents is, is different, there was some sort of similarity, and and um, I, we were able to sort of connect. I think on a level of talking about you know, what we enjoy with our dads, what we lost in our dads, and what we learned from our dads. And um, that, that I think, is why there's definitely, and others have mentioned, there's sort of a strong chord of like going back to his dad. And I think that that was because that was probably central to our conversation through, through the time that we met. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying, because you bring to mind uh, that scene in Almost Famous where the editor's challenging the teenage rock writer, where are you in the story? Well, now we know. Uh, but speaking, you talked about Doug Gilmore and the place he held, but uh, there's obviously a place that he's from, this place where we all spent time. I just wondered how much having had those, spent some of your you know early young adulthood years in Kingston, uh, going to Queens, Queens, how did that help you understand Doug Gilmore and where he came from? Because it's, it's a unique city. Yeah, it's a lovely city. It's a city that I, I I love because of the place it held in my growth as a you know as a person and um, I, I, a lot actually. I mean, I actually first interviewed Doug years ago when I was at the Queens Journal, and I um, I nervously got his phone number and called him and had probably a thirty minute conversation with him when he was driving, and I. Um, I, we, we just transcribed the interview. I was just like, "This is great. We have to transcribe everything." So I went back and read it, and actually used some of it in the in the book. I actually oh. went back, used some of the details, and circled back, and just made well, sure I had a couple lines. About that you were, that you were it was just like an interview of like, "What are you up to now?" So the story was uh, Cooks to Killer. So it's talking about Cooks Arena oh, yes, back. Yes, yes. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I should fill that in. There, there, there were two arenas of sort of in the north part of Kingston: the Cook Brothers Arena and the Wally Elm Arena, which was always deride derided derisively called the Wally Gardens because they were just two absolute dumps like yeah. basically outdoor rings that they basically just slapped wall, four walls up around anyway and, well and, and you mentioned just the um, the feeling of hockey in that place so my own experience there is I'm um, you know I played for the, the Queens hockey team somewhat uh, when I was there as a as a goalie for a couple of years and then um, like everybody else played on the many outdoor hockey rinks and got a sense of what it was like to you know cross the go over to, to uh, RMC and see the frozen lake oh, and everything. Right. So I could I could imagine um, everything there. And it's this, like, without being too cliche, it has this, this heart of what hockey means to people kind of exists everywhere there. You can skate behind uh, behind City Hall downtown and get that feeling. And that's tragically hip as the soundtrack of the place. So it just feels, um, it just oozes hockey. And I think that this was a chance to sort of celebrate that. I tried to do a little bit more, actually, but I wasn't able to. And you were, you were probably there when the old Jock Hardy Arena was there, too, not the, uh, the the new one, right? When was the new one built? Well, there is, there, well, right now, there is no hockey arena. You play at Queens, they play at the Memorial yeah. Center. And, oh, which yeah, kind of right. Makes, which kind of makes the success they're having under Brett Gibson, you know, a remarkable team with no full-time coach and no arena, and they made the national championship last Ooh. tournament last year. That, that's an, actually a really good story that the, the, the hockey team's been doing lately, and, and it's interesting because, yeah, I did play at Jock and it was I actually didn't know about the history of it until I sort of sort of read a little bit more about the history of hockey in Canada even later on I learned a little bit more about the place but it was sort of a a arena that needed to get torn down but I I took many exams there as well but I spent a lot of time at at Jock Hardy and um, yeah so I mean my my um, my hockey my hockey life ended in Kingston but it I think my um, opportunity to write about hockey began there so this was sort of a fitting opportunity to talk about Doug whose story is Kingston in so many ways um, 
in terms of the book tour, were you uh, following him around uh, with that, or was that once you wrote the book that was? Because I was I was wondering if you did follow him around, what what the reaction was like, uh, and what you noticed if you indeed went on it. Yeah. So I went to a bunch of places in the GTA, in the Toronto area. I didn't um, head out west or anything like that. Um, although I know they had a great time. I know it was a lot of fun for them. Uh, uh, Mike Miller from HarperCollins got to go along. and He got initiated to the uh, uh, a few pranks uh, from Doug. So um, he's, uh, he's uh, I know he's still, I think, recovering from that experience. But um, in, in Toronto, I went to probably four or five events. And I just, I actually just want to sort of stand you know, next to um, the people from HarperCollins in the, in the background and watch uh, people react. And it's really a unique experience, I think, as as a writer to be able to do that because, I mean, this is Doug's book and this is Doug's experience. And so I'm, I can sort of be a ghost in the background and um, sit back and watch people holding it and waiting to meet him. Right. And um, in Orangeville, was it was remarkable. Orangeville, um, I met with him beforehand, had a, had a couple of beers beforehand with some of my friends just to sort of interact. We went over to um, the hockey rink and the lineup, um, I had actually, it's a newer rink, I hadn't been there before, but the lineup was like, it's one of those multi, multi-rink multi complexes and it was like through the whole um, atrium and it was going on for, probably he was probably there for three hours signing and it was, it was just, it was nonstop people coming to meet him and I, I kind of I just realized what it meant and actually it kind of made me nervous I was like oh my goodness I hope they like this book because <laughs> they clearly like him a great deal and he met every single one stood up shook their hands took photos I know he was exhausted after because he had just driven the night before he was in Montreal for a signing he drove all the way to Orangeville directly and then went home after and so he I mean it was, it's a pretty long day and he um, signed for three hours and didn't sort of turn anybody away so it was it was remarkable to see how um, and it was young kids and old, and, and sort of dads bringing their kids, right. right? And so just to see the impact he still has on uh, on hockey fans was remarkable. And I wonder, uh, to, to to what extent is his kind of life story almost sort of story about the modernization of the NHL? Because Neil and I were realizing this, like when you put his career eighty three to two thousand three, it, it falls like dead even on either side. Like the last ten years before Gary Bettman becomes commissioner, the first ten years after he goes from a league where. You know the St. Louis Blues are bouncing checks to their players to where you know <laughs> you guys can't are starting his own jersey. Yeah, he <laughs> couldn't, couldn't take couldn't take his own jersey home, and yeah. And, yeah. And by the end, he's he's trying. Wasn't he trying to negotiate? I don't think that is that in the book where he's, he tried to get U.S. money. Wasn't he trying to get U.S. currency converted to the U.S. Oh, he might have been. Yeah, yeah, at the very end. Yeah, he. Um, well, it's interesting because he. You're absolutely right about that. Sort of this. It's this sort of this era does that he, that he sort of crosses over because he I mean Harry Arnest uh, made the made the, the Blues pay for their own like flights home after they lost in, in a series like there's just all kinds of stuff that just wouldn't fly today and you just sort of see this um, the modernization and sort of the the economic realities of pro sport sort of emerging in, in the early 90s I minute mean, but I can't off the top of my head think of what his first contract was but it was like I think he said 85 yeah 85,000 or something and it was a thousand bucks every two weeks or something yeah, yeah and, and he talked it was weird because he was talking to me about um the, the very first his, his rookie season about sort of having to budget and being very concerned about money and it's hard now to think about a hockey player being in a situation so I was like I'm just trying to think about that. I was, I was trying to contemplate that, but then you realize that he, he wasn't making the kind of money that, that players make now. And so that really um, changed. And then he obviously, um, I mean, they, they had an interesting contract with the Toronto Maple Leafs with him and Cliff Fletcher, where that the milk commercial that he did, all of those contracts were sort of built into his contract with the Leafs. So a lot of interesting things were happening at that time. Yeah, I mean, like, you probably have to be, you know, you know, in those early years when he first started in the league, like, you were probably Wayne Gretzky to have a commercial, right? You, I, you probably... 
I don't know, was any star of the leap on a major campaign like that? Yeah, that, that, well, the, the Harold Ballard era, they, he was kind of like always like very stingy about letting the leaf logo being used for everything. I remember there was like criticism one time because I think they got Wendell Clark and Lloyd Mosby to do a PSA about breaking, taking the, clearing the ice off your sidewalks. And Mosby did the thing in his full Blue Jay uniform and Wendell Clark was wearing this like generic blue hockey uniform because <laughs> Ballard wouldn't authorize the Leaf logo and, and it's still it's the legacy of that if you go in the College Street subway station yes. there's, it doesn't say Toronto Maple Leafs on that mural that Ken Danby painted right uh, I didn't even know I didn't even realize that that was the reason wow um, there's a competition in all athletes by nature and you know I've seen it when I've talked to some people off the record that have books out and they're like this book's ahead of my book I wanna, I wanna beat that guy. Is is there a competition? We can talk about the authors, but do you feel like uh, some of these subjects want to have their book beat maybe another guy on the bestseller list on the global? That's bestseller? interesting. Um, for us, like with Doug, I mean, I don't know that he really. Can. I think he obviously wants to succeed, and and the, went, the book did really well. I think for us, the target, and we talked a little bit about it, was maybe maybe sort of competing with. Wendell and Ty Domi, whose book came out, because they're you know they're friends and they're people who had uh, were released as well. So I think there was a bit of built-in, but it was all friendly competition. Right. I mean, I in doing these things, you, you can never tell fully how a book's going to do, and you can't really bank um, your measure of success on it. Like you have to be you have to be satisfied in knowing the book was was written to the best of of both parties' abilities, and that we're proud of it. And They'll let, let the rest of it speak for itself. So, I mean, it was, I obviously love, I want it to be number one, and I was excited when it was. It was really thrilling to see um, people go out there and buying it. Um, but I mean, for Doug, it's just in their day in his life. So, for right. just people coming up and talking to him, buying something that, that he's promoting is sort of just uh, what he's been doing for years. Can you give us a glimpse, and you don't have to go into exact numbers, but how, do, how does the finance work on something like this? Is, is the subject, in this case, Doug Gilmore, paid a certain fee? And then the you know percentage of the book sales and how does it work like how does how does it all break down between author subject and yeah. how the how the sales work? It's always a little bit different, um, and it sort of depends on like uh, on how we negotiate things and sort of what kind of um, basically where the publisher is in terms of what they're able to pay for the book. I mean, in in um, in this situation, sort of, there's a there's an advance fee that it, the way it would work was, is that the publisher HarperCollins would um, have a contract with Doug, where there'd be an advance fee for that, and then within that, um, I would negotiate a writing fee right. out of that. So sometimes you can work in in the different areas like royalties on the back end or royalties up front, but that all um, sort of depends on the circumstances. It's not really set in stone. It really comes down to um, the agreement that that you have with the person and sort of how you view. Um, you know, both, both parties are kind of figuring out where, what's the book going to do and what's the best economic situation for what it will take to get it done and right. for where it will go. But yeah, it's usually in advance, and then uh, if enough copies are sold, then you can earn. So if it's up. a bestseller, you're 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 not complaining. You're not just writing a book and going, "Oh, I hope uh, everyone just appreciates it, even if it's bought or not." <laughs> no, I mean this is yeah, this is a financial decision. Obviously, getting involved in a book like this, and it, I, I'm happy with how the book went, and we were, um, you know, it's it's. HarperCollins, I think, and, and the way they look at certain these books, like they know there's a certain amount of there's a market for a book like this, and they'll do their research. I mean, this is this is well for me, it's a literary pursuit. Right. It, for publishers, it's a it's a largely a business yeah. pursuit, and um, <laughs> they've done the math. So um, you know, it's it's difficult. I mean, for, so for example, for a book like uh, Clint Malarchuk's book right. that I'm really proud to have worked on, and and is one of um, the greatest experiences of my 
writing um, opportunities that that book up front would have had a um, you know like less guarantee to to sell and it did sell well it did well but that really had to depend on how we sold it the story and everything so um, we had a, you know the agreements and that would be different than mine with Doug yeah and that actually sort of uh, maybe segues into my next question which was we had Stacy May Fowles on in the first season, and she included your course, your magazine feature on the boys from Herring Cove, these boys from yeah. the far north coming down to Ontario to play hockey, and just what the sacrifices they make. And but uh, I just wondered, like, when it comes to you know subjects of books versus subjects of magazine articles, like, is there is there a variation between what people will take thirty minutes to read versus what they'll pay thirty dollars to have a hardcover copy of? Yeah, I mean, I was I was honored to be included in that book, and I think everyone should pick it up. The best mag- magazine sports brand that Stacey May was an editor on that was just uh, an incredible collection. But y- yes, the answer to that is um, there is definitely a difference in the you know it's not in in the what kind of book should be written. I think every book, every story could be a book. Um, I think that it's just a matter of the opportunity and the fact that there's a lot more cost that goes into writing a book than there is into a magazine story. So I, I would say that a story like um, the the story about her traveling with a group of, of, of boys from the far north to Toronto is a is an interesting story, but it can it can only serve so much in that um, you know people don't know who they are and and, and generally uh, to sell a book sort of you you have to know the subject in some capacity. There's definitely sort of a calculated math and that knowing that people want to sit down and read about somebody that they can recall the memories to so if there's a book um, about a player you know you want there's certain things you want to know about and you know a little, a little bit more about and that's going to carry over a book um, whereas other books you know they for them to catch on they just really have to um, you know get the right amount of press and get the right right kind of connection to a story and that's um that's harder to hit than it is to sort of say you know what I'm going to take a guy like Doug Gilmore um, people know who he is there's sort of a built-in uh, mechanism there um, you're an English lit major. Yes. Yeah. So, um, touching on that, um, Glenn Stout, are you familiar with Glenn Stout? Very, yeah, very familiar, yeah. Glenn Stout, is, and I'm paraphrasing, is, he's of course the, um, I guess the uh, editor, series editor for Best of American Sports Writing. And I read a, a quote in paraphrasing that he said, um, in order to write great narrative nonfiction, you have to be able to, you have to read good fiction. Yeah. Is is that did do you, do you find that the case being an English lit major has helped you because I mean let's let's be honest there's a lot of people I mean there's college programs out there right now for people that just want to go in and focus on sports but is there a kind of a romance that's lost or anything or, or maybe a romance that's gained by having an English lit major a way to tell the story perspective that you think you may have I think that um an understanding of good stories is essential. So I know in, I mean, I've read obviously a, a ton of literature because of English Lit, but that was at school, it almost ruined it for me right. uh, because it was either like, well, talk about the criticism of this. Right. And I, I was just actually interested in the story and then telling the story. So I think I definitely carried a lot of what I learned just through reading, internalized it right. without really consciously thinking about it. And I do think it's important. I do think it's important to tell a good narrative story that you understand um, Narrative and that you're moved by narrative and that you can sort of embrace it. So I think it definitely has helped. Has helped. I hope it's helped inform what I do. Um, building on that, uh, Sportsnet the magazine is is no longer. Yeah. But um, do you think its creation and 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 the fact that it, it did exist? Do you do you feel like it's fed uh, a culture of long form in in Canadian sports media right now? 
I certainly hope so. I, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of examples of long form um, coming out of the United States, um, great examples of long form. Um, but I think that uh, within the Canadian marketplace, there wasn't anything um, like that. There's some great, obviously, great newspaper writers doing some long form narratives, great magazine writers doing stuff in the Walrus, other places. But um, Sportsnet gave, Sportsnet Magazine gave us a home where we were able to focus on every every two weeks we're able to write at least one long form story that was help us connect to that literary side of us and right now the magazine's gone um but the, a lot of us still work for sports then and we do every week we do a thing called the big read which yeah. comes out and it's actually um one of the most read stories on our site every week it, like top three um consistently and that says a lot about the appetite uh for quality i would say quality storytelling and i think that uh, i hope that people uh, enjoy that and are continuing to, to look for that. Um, speaking of quality long form, uh, your most recent piece, What It Takes, mm-hmm. um, I believe that's the title, yes, right? for yeah. Kev- the Kevin Stevens piece. Um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people really, probably more than long form, really get into a good feature piece and they might see the feature before they even read the story. It's never the other way around, really, is it? I feel like you'll never, you never see a good feature piece, and then someone writes a story about it. I feel like it's always based on, uh, and uh, based on a good long form piece. In the, if you look at uh, the Harrison Brown story, yes, same thing. I think Christina Rutherford yep. had done a story, and there's there's numerous examples, but. It's, it's never uh, for me. I've never noticed the chicken and the egg with that thing. It's a good. Per- it's a good uh, point. I mean, I I don't I know that I've been lucky to work with um, our our features television team at Sportsnet several times. I did it on that um, the story about traveling with the hockey team, and I and I did it with in, in the Stevens case as well. And and I think what works is that the experience of sitting down and and working on a long-form story like this is very in-depth and it's not artificial in any way so it's a conversation where you're trying to get um and and with interviews you're trying to get the just the raw truth pull out all the details um the reality of telling the story visually um requires not but it's not artificial, but you're set up in a stage. You have to, you know, there's some there's some element of performance to it just by the nature of the medium. And so I think that um, when you when you do the process of the, in, the, the long-form interview first, the long-form story that can get to that story in a literary way, I think it can help inform um, a, a documentary style piece uh, in, in a different way because the information's already there. You can you can pull a little further and ask for it. And also, in some cases, the subject's a little more comfortable. Um, you know, I've already talked about this, therefore I can talk about it on the camera. We did that with Clint Malarchuk when I went down and did a, a long film story with him in a couple of days of where he just kind of poured his heart out. This is before the book came out when I did a surfing for Sportsnet magazine. I went back and did a TV piece. Um, and on that, uh, that, in that, in that interview, he's, he's just, he starts crying, talking about this stuff. But we were able... I had the ability to go back to the place um, and ask the questions we'd already asked because we had a trust already. So it, it allowed us, I think, to have a more vulnerable uh, interview. Right. And I just wondered, uh, there used to always be the stereotype, the firewall between the people who talk on camera and the, and the people with the, with the keyboard, but I don't think that's ever true. I, I worked with Earl McRae in yeah. Ottawa, and he was like the biggest, oh, ham, nice. the biggest ham that ever hammed, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Sorry, Earl. He's listening in from the great, great beyond. I just wondered how much, uh, what, what did you have influences in when, when it came to sort of doing the documentary style thing, like coming from a right, I mean, you mentioned the transition from a writing background, but who did you sort of look at when you were trying to think about people who could 
maybe sort of influence your style or say, okay, he's doing it well, I need to take a little of that. Well, I think the obvious um, answer is Stephen Brunt, who I um, I think of as a, an important mentor in my life, who I talk to a lot. Um, he's I've given him books to review, like just behind the scenes, and uh, we had conversations about his transition into uh, a lot of uh, the visual storytelling they've been doing at Sportsnet, which is great, is our essay style. I mean, he has a unique voice, um, literally in his writing and literally in his voice, um, to sort of capture something. And I, looking at that, I, I think that's something I'd strive to do. And, and I look at the way he's, I think, able to bring the art of writing to writing for broadcast, writing for documentary style work, and interviewing for documentary style work. I think it's something that I think all, um, you know, any journalist that's looking to sort of do a cross-platform kind of thing I uh, should look to. So I think he's he's definitely been the most direct influence in that regard because I've just spoken to him about it. Um, but I mean, there's you know there's a lot of great examples in the states as well about for that. Well, Dan, I think uh, we're just about running out of time here, so I want to ask you what what are your upcoming uh, projects? What you, <laughs> what, what's 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 in the in the hopper for you right now in terms of feature writing and maybe another book? Well, I just I just finished. Uh, Kevin Stevens and I do have another book um, that I we're working on, but I can't um, can't announce it just yet. I'm sorry. Do you I, want to break news here on Sports <laughs> Lit? I, I unfortunately can't. I have to get permission to do it, but I, it will be announced very soon. But I, I will say that I have a, a project coming out next fall that I'm sort of signing on to do, and I'm excited to get to jump into it. I'm actually about to take a, a leave uh, from Sportsnet to get it done, so I'm going to be off of Sportsnet for for several months just to get it done. Well, we hope uh, you'll join us to talk about whatever that project is. I would be happy to. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on. Thank you.